0: What are the latest legal concerns about regulatory compliance and reasonable security? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group, and we're getting our legal perspective today from David Novetta, one of the founding partners of the Information Law Group. David, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, just to get us started here, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your current roles both with the Information Law Group and with the American Bar Association.
1: Yeah, uh, great. Thanks. Uh, just as, by way of background, I am a, an attorney that focuses on information security, privacy, and technology-oriented law. Uh, I have a law firm with a few other partners called the Information Law Group, and our focus is is, the, the, is at those areas of law as well. Um, in addition to that role, I am currently uh, one of the co-chairs of the American Bar Association's Information Security Committee. And so uh, I, I'm basically living and breathing uh, information security and privacy law issues, and uh, in particular where they intersect with uh, substantive security and privacy practices.
0: Now, what regulatory trends do you see impacting information security so far this year, and particularly in banking, government, and healthcare—the areas that we pay the most attention to?
1: Well, I, I think uh, we're at another interesting time in the uh, information security regulatory and, and legal risk realm. Um, what I see right now are a few things that are, that are uh, gonna be impacting companies in, in the coming uh, months and years. Uh, on the one hand, I think we're seeing more activity uh, from the federal government side. Uh, I think we'll, we'll talk about high tech act a little later uh, that would impact the entire uh, healthcare industry. But also we recently had a, a law pass, I mean, I'm sorry, a bill pass in, in, in the House of Representatives at least uh, called uh, the data bill. Which, uh, also regulates information security and privacy, including, uh, national breach notice law. So I think we're gonna see some, uh, more broad-reaching federal laws, uh, with high-tech and perhaps data, uh, coming up in the, in the future. On, on the same, on the other hand, we also are seeing the states, uh, actively and taking steps in, in different directions uh, and, and furthering the regulatory environment. Uh, most people are probably aware of the Massachusetts and, and Nevada on personal information laws and data security laws. And I think uh, similar to what happened with SB 1386, in the state realms, we may see more laws uh, by states requiring some sort of uh, level of reasonable security for companies that hold on to personal information. As well as, uh, in some cases, particular types of controls that might need to be implemented, including uh, encryption and uh, written security policies. So, I think the regulatory environment and and some of the legal risk is coming from kind of all sides at this point in time.
0: You know, you you spoke about high tech, and certainly that's a huge topic now in the healthcare area. And you know, we've got deadlines that have just been reached, actually. What impact do you really see coming from the High Tech Act on healthcare organizations and uh, information security in general?
1: Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think there are going to be a lot of impacts. Healthcare is such a huge segment of, of the economy, and this hits a lot of different types of healthcare organizations. Basically, anyone who uh, is regulated under HIPAA uh, is subject to the High Tech Act, um, as well as companies uh, that are handling personal health records who may may not be HIPAA covered these. Uh, the FTC has a version of the High Tech Act breach notice requirements, and the uh, Health and Human Services side has a, is a section that uh, com, uh, relates to covered entities under HIPAA, as well as directly to business associates. Um, High Tech Act basically, uh, the, the big concern is uh, the breach notice obligations. It basically opens up a, an entirely new category of information, uh, personal health records and medical information that may not have been subject to the existing state notification laws. Um, on the one hand, oftentimes some of the state laws uh, would, would uh, for, for instance, California started a trend to put in medical information as one of the categories of information where notice is required. Uh, other states that haven't necessarily followed suit yet, but what I think high tech does is it creates, obviously, a national law that, uh makes all of these types of entities have to provide notice in the in the case of a security breach in, impacting medical records. Um, and if I recall California when they changed their breach notice law to include medical records, there were quite a few uh companies having to report medical record breaches, uh oftentimes not huge ones, you know, smaller numbers of records, but nonetheless it could be something that uh, internally would be a difficult thing to manage. Uh, for companies who are constantly going to have to keep their eye on records that may be breached in the medical realm.
0: David, I want to shift gears with you a little bit here. There have been a couple of big stories in banking recently revolving around reasonable security. We've had a a bank that sued a customer. We've had a customer that sued a bank, and, and these have been huge issues. What do you see as some of the key legal issues here that really are going to affect organizations beyond banking?
1: Yes, uh, and, and this is this is an interesting area. Um, uh, just by way of kind of more background, stepping back a second, in the legal realm, we've had we have had plenty of lawsuits for uh, basically involving uh, consumers uh, whose personal information may have bre- been breached by an organization. But, you know, all kinds of different organizations. We've also had credit card type breaches where issuing banks have sued organizations after a security breach to recoup is- reissuance costs. Um, both sets of these cases, uh, to a, a large degree, have, have not gone very far uh, in courts. Um, basically, uh, each of these sets of cases, uh, courts have more or less routinely dismissed the cases on a, a motion to dismiss, which is a very early procedural um, t- uh, tactic. And they, the, the rationale being that the, the uh, individual consumers and even the banks uh, haven't suffered any damages yet, even though their information may have been exposed. So they may have bought some credit monitoring. But the courts have said, well, credit monitoring is basically something uh, to prevent against future damages uh, to your credit or, or what have you. Same with the banks. Uh, if they issue a card, there may not have been fraud yet on those cards. It's it's an it's an attempt to prevent future fraud. Um, now we have these online banking cases where the the general fact pattern is basically a smaller or medium business uh, um, has an online banking and wire transfer capability. Somehow or another, uh, the bad guys get the credentials of the the banking customer, go in, use their online banking uh, mechanisms to transfer money out, usually to some bank way overseas uh, where it's very difficult to recover. And the bank coming back and saying, well, we're not responsible for that essentially. Um, So, in these cases, what's interesting is uh, the issue of damages is is really not an issue. The the roadblock that existed for consumer and issuing bank lawsuits damages is is not an issue because obviously, uh, you know, uh, money has been taken directly out of these these businesses' accounts. So that that, that small component uh, is overcome. So what happens is, um, stepping back from the litigation context, there are various points uh, during a litigation where you can get your case dismissed if you're a defendant earlier and with less money and with, with less risk, frankly, of a big uh, verdict. So motion to dismiss is one one case. Uh, it's early on, and basically, if you, if you win a motion to dismiss, the court has, the court has basically said that you haven't been able to plead a, a claim against the uh, defendant. Um, there's a next step, it's, it's called a motion for summary judgment, which basically a court will dismiss a case saying that there's no set of facts that, that we could find that would allow the um, defendant to be found liable. Um, with these banking cases, I'm sorry, the next step is actually going to trial. If, you, if, you don't, if, you, if you're not able to win on a motion to dismiss, you go in front of a judge or jury uh, and go to trial. And most attorneys will tell you, and most companies will tell you that they don't wanna be in front of a judge or jury because there's always a huge risk there. Uh, Most cases get settled well before trial happens. Uh, However, those two first earlier uh, chances to dismiss a case are very important for litigants. Um, What is happening with these online banking cases is you have the damage component already settled. So a motion to dismiss is probably not gonna be successful. Uh, Then you go to the motion for summary judgment. We've had at least one case, the Shames Yakel case, uh, involving online banking, where a court has denied uh, the bank's, uh, the bank defendant's motion for summary judgment, and the issue there was reasonable security, whether there wasn't a reasonable security in place. Uh, in the shames yakel case, uh, I believe they were not using two fa- two-factor authentication, and there are some federal guidelines uh, that suggest that that is the uh, proper thing to do when it comes to online banking. Uh, what the court did there was said that there is a question of fact as to whether or not um, the bank uh, used had reasonable security in place because they weren't using two-factor authentication uh, as recommended by this federal agency. Um, so basically, in essence, what that does is it, sub- it subjects the bank to a potential jury trial, uh, which, again, is, is a risky proposition. So these cases, online banking cases, have the potential to get much further along than the the consumer cases that we've seen so far. Now, on the question of reasonable security, that's where I think things are interesting and actually the impact of these cases um, or maybe wider than just banks because what I think might happen is as they wind through the courts, we're gonna get a better uh, viewpoint of how courts approach the question of what is reasonable security And actually, it may be illuminating uh, to some degree and hopefully helpful, because then maybe organizations can react to address how the courts are gonna look at it. But for instance, in the Shane Ziegle case, uh, what what they looked at uh, were FFEIC guidelines uh, regarding online banking and and two-factor authentication. And that piece of information alone was able to get the plaintiffs over a hurdle uh, as far as creating a question of fact. Um, the, the problem with trying to establish reasonable security is, obviously, you're going to have opinions on both sides of the equation. Both sides are going to, um, the plaintiff and the defendant are both going to hire experts who are going to have counter-opposing opinions, and that is the classic type of question for a jury to decide. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how you're going to get through that issue uh, and, and be able to get a case uh, basically dismissed earlier on if you're, in, if you're a bank. It be, I think it could be difficult. Um, there, there was another recent case, uh, EMI versus Comerica, which I think will actually probably even illuminate reasonable security a bit, a little bit further. In that case, another online banking case, uh, but in that case, the, actual, the bank was actually using, providing two-factor authentication to its, its clients. In this case, they were using a token-based system. Uh, what's interesting there and why I think this is gonna stretch the idea of what is reasonable or what is not reasonable is that the, uh, the plaintiff in that case, EMI, it appears that they gave up their uh, username password as well as the randomly generated number on their token uh, on, uh, due to a phishing attack. So uh, basically uh, the allegations state that they received an email that looked similar to um, emails that Comerica had uh, given before to the, um, to the, to the plaintiff. And essentially, uh, that plaintiff gave up the credentials uh, and then allowed about $500,000 to get uh, transferred out of its account. Um, Now, the question from a legal standpoint is what what kind of duty does the bank owe to its customers to prevent basically the customer from volunteering this information? Um, And then another question to follow up on that is some states have, have laws that relate to uh, contributory negligence or comparative negligence that basically say uh, if, if your contributory negligence uh, states that implies that law if, if, a, if a plaintiff was more than fifty one percent responsible for the, for the harm, they may be barred from recovery completely in comparative negligence states they say if the plaintiff was thirty ne- uh, requ- percent uh, responsible they may uh, that means that the, the bank may only be seventy percent responsible and the plaintiff would retain thirty percent of the harm that they, they suffered. So I think uh the questions here are gonna be very interesting to see what kind of responsibility the bank I mean I'm sorry, the courts put on the actual um, uh, bank customers to protect the information to protect their credentials and to not do things that compromise those uh credentials. Um, and you know, from a from a legal standpoint and, and what is reasonable, what kind of what kind of duties does the um, does the bank have to make sure that its customers don't do something stupid. Um, in some cases, you know, I would think that, you know, for instance, if, if a customer, banking customer, were out and left their computer at Starbucks with a sticky note with all their passwords on it, uh, to what extent does a bank have a responsibility to try to prevent uh, uh, someone from you know, using those credentials when a customer's done that? Uh, same thing with a phishing type of exploit. What To what extent does a bank have to prevent a customer from providing information in a spoofed email. Um, I I think these are going to be very interesting questions, and what's going to be interesting from my point of view is uh, hopefully we'll be able to see how the court analyzes these questions and what kind of standards they impose uh, as far as um, making uh, whether they're going to impose a duty on banks to, to prevent these things from happening.
0: Well, David, we've tackled a lot here. We've talked about regulatory compliance and high tech and, and data privacy. And, of course, there's this topic of reasonable security, which, as you say, has got implications for organizations far, you know, far beyond banking. One last question for you. Given all that we've talked about, and especially given this, this overriding topic of reasonable security, what advice would you give to our audience about the elements they really need to be paying attention to now in their own information security organizations?
1: Right. Uh- This is interesting. I'm going to be speaking at the RSA on some of these issues uh, coming up next week. Uh, One of the things that we're talking about and I'm talking about with my fellow lawyers uh, at the American Bar Association as well as uh, security professionals that are part of my committee there uh, is is how to use um, existing standards to um, establish reasonableness. Uh, there's basically, I think, I would recommend companies take a look at ISO and other standards and, and try to peg their activities to something that's established and something that can be defended. Uh, you know, if you're looking at the issue of reasonable security an industry standards, something good to tie to. Um, it may not be, you may need to do more than the industry is doing if, if you're doing, if the industry itself is not doing enough. But it's something that's set as a, basically a minimum. Um, on the issue of risk-based type of factors and how you need to consider laws uh, that are risk-based. Um, I would say is a, a practice, any, any kind of control or practice that you can put in place that is not expensive but which reduces a lot of risk are the types of controls that if you don't have in place, you're going to get in trouble with on a legal side. Um, controls that are extremely expensive and maybe only uh, reduce risk to a, on a marginal level May not be necessary, uh, when it comes to what are, uh, what the question of reasonable security. Uh, one thing, you know, to remember is, uh, I think courts don't require perfect security. Uh, they require reasonable security. So a breach, it is possible for a breach to happen and a company to be found not liable for that breach as long as they've got, uh, as long as they can show that they've got processes in place that, uh, that, that, that tie to risk as well as what others in the industry are doing. So, Um, I think those are important steps to take for an organization. And then uh, the last step again, I I think it's uh, more important than ever for uh, security professionals and lawyers to try to translate uh, between each each other's professions here to come to an understanding of of how each other's worlds work uh, because there needs to be a very much collaborative effort between uh, basically two professions that kind of speak their own language oftentimes. And I think this is uh, going to be one of the bigger challenges for organizations is to getting security professionals and lawyers together on the same page and opening up those lines of communications so that uh, they can speak together and hopefully achieve compliance as well as good security.
0: Very good, David. I appreciate your time and your insights today.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: We've been talking with David Nevada, the founding partner with the Information Law Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.